Hey, it's nice to be back. We've missed you. I don't think Phil and I have ever had three Sundays in a row we've not been around. Um, it's nice to be back. So we're going to carry on looking at um, another one of the questions that Jesus asked. So we're going to be jumping in between Matthew, 20, Matthew 15 and Psalm 22 this morning. The, the words will come up on the screen, but if you've got your Bibles and you want to turn there, bookmark one. We're going to be between the two. So Mark 15 and then Psalm 22. And so this morning we're going to look at the question, another, you know, one of the one of the most emotive questions that Jesus asked, where Jesus says, you know, why have you abandoned me? So it's one of those questions that he asks and doesn't get an answer for. Um, and so what I want to look at this morning is what do we do when that is actually our question? What do we do when that is our experience? Um, when actually life is hard, things aren't going well, we're suffering, we're struggling. And then to make it worse, it's almost like actually God seems absent. It seems like he's distant. He seems like he's gone quiet on us. And, and, and honestly, that is our, it's like, why have you abandoned me? Where are you, God? Um, so that's what I want to look at this morning. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to jump into Mark 15. God, I want to thank you that you're with us and you're for us. Thank you, God, that you speak. Thank you, God, that you move. Um, thank you, God, that you love us and you want to love us into the fullness of life. So we just ask, Holy Spirit, come be with us this morning. Challenge us, change us. We want to meet with you. We want to be like you, Jesus. So we ask that you'd help us. Amen. Alrighty, Mark 15, verse 33. So this is Mark's, um, this is Mark's version of, of, the, of the crucifixion. It says, At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. At three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, oi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, Listen, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on the staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes, down, comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. So this is, you know, this is the kind of the, the dark, hard point of the gospel where Jesus has been crucified and this is his, is his death. Um, and, and he asks in the midst of it, the question Jesus cries out is, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? And on one hand, you could say it's a, it's a funny question to ask because like, Jesus, like, he didn't know what was going to happen, right? Like, did, it, this, it didn't come as a surprise to him. If you read back in the Gospels, you know, he'd already said to the disciples explicitly that he would be handed over to evil men. He would be killed, but he would on the third day rise again. He'd said, you know, I've come to give my life, not to be served, but to serve, to give my life as a ransom for any. So like Jesus knew what his mission on earth was. Like he knew what he was here to do. Um, so in this question, why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? Jesus is not looking for a nice, tidy theological answer kind of a, hey, what's going on here? Like, that is not what's happening. He knew what his mission on earth was. He knew what it would cost him. He knew what it was going to achieve. But in that moment, like, in that moment where he found himself, his question was coming out of real pain. He felt utterly abandoned. Even though he knew that was the plan, this is how he felt. And, and it's because, you know, the reality of the gospel is, listen, without the cross... Where Jesus found himself in that moment is our reality. Outside of Jesus and outside of the cross, that is our reality. Like he was completely separated from God, and so were we before the cross. Like He really did, genuinely did carry the full weight of sin in order that now you and I don't have to. And, and it genuinely cost him. You know, we have to understand, yes, Jesus was fully God, but he was also fully human. So 
you know, the physical and emotional pain, the humiliation, the rejection, the complete injustice of his situation as he was crucified, that cost him just as it would have cost any one of us. But because it cost him, it now doesn't cost us. Like that is the enormity of the gospel, that the reality of what Jesus did on the cross means we now aren't separated, we don't carry the weight of sin, and we don't have to pay that price any longer. That's the truth of the gospel. It does not cost us. But this is the thing. In that moment, like Jesus, knowing all of that, is not looking for a tidy theological answer. He is expressing extreme pain and communicating the reality that I feel utterly abandoned by God in this moment right now. And and there's there's two different things, isn't it, almost going on here. There's one, the expression of pain for what he was going through. But almost to compound that is that, actually, God, you're not here, or not in any way that I can hear, feel, sense, or or see. Like, it's it's a both. And, you know, maybe we've had periods of life where things are difficult, but God feels really present. And we can really hear his voice and we can really see his presence and like his promises still feel really real, even though we're in a hard place, right? And that's difficult, but what is harder still is those times when we're suffering and it feels like God is absent. It feels like he's gone quiet. Um, And so even this is, I think, what Jesus is doing here is giving us absolute permission just, just to be honest and express the reality of those times when it feels like I am struggling and God, where on earth are you? Like, why don't you do something? I remember really clearly, I've shared before my testimony of having two periods of, in my life of really quite severe insomnia and anxiety and kind of panic attacks at night. And it went on for months at a time, it was really debilitating. And if you've ever struggled with anxiety or insomnia, you'll like you'll know, it's really, really difficult. And I, I clearly remember, you know, it would go on for weeks at a time, raging against God at three and four and five in the morning, going, where are you? Like, why don't you do something? And, you know, kind of every verse in the Bible I could find about God giving sleep to his love, I was like, where are you? Like, this is what you say, but here I am. Where are you, God? And Jesus is, is, is actually giving us permission to be real in those times. And I think being able to be real is actually a really important way that actually pain, frustration, confusion, disappointment, those things are validated and then we can process through them. We have to have a start-off point where we, we allow ourselves to ask that question, God, where are you? Why have you seemingly abandoned me? And so in, in, in struggle and in suffering, you know, I know we'd love to have a really tidy answer. We'll do A and B and then you'll get C. And then, like, but honestly, it isn't like that. Like, I don't think God gives us like an RAC route planner, you know, with a step-by-step. You go here for three miles and then turn right. Like, I don't think that's what it's like. But what I do think is it's more like he gives us a compass. I know that's super old school, right? I wouldn't have a clue what to do with a compass. But I know they help you navigate, right? I think this is what the Bible does. It doesn't give me a route, do A and then B and then C. And listen, I'm a logical, pragmatic person. I wish there was always an A and then a B and then a C, but there isn't. But I do think what God gives us is is a a compass, like a framework for how do we navigate those times. Um, And actually, we find it in Psalm 22 because in that question that Jesus asked, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is directly quoting from Psalm 22. So Psalm 22 is actually a prophetic psalm which talks about Jesus' death, talks about his crucifixion. So I want to kind of jump between the two and and see how actually I think Jesus asking this question in this way is pointing us to this psalm, which is like a compass, which is going to help us navigate these times. So Psalm 22, starting from verse 1, here's the exact quote. My God, my God, 
Why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? Why are you so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. And then he goes on. Yet, you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. So here the psalmist is, is writing and he's, he's being completely honest. This is where I'm at. This is how I'm feeling. I feel forsaken. You, I feel like, God, you are miles away from saving me. I feel like you are totally disconnected from my cries of anguish. I'm crying out and you are not answering. Like he's not tidying it up and Christian, like he's just putting it out there. This is where I'm at. And yet, straight on then, yet, you are the one enthroned on the Holy One. Like he straight away is like, this is my reality, but this is who you are. And the way that he kind of anchors himself back is actually reminding himself of who God has been in history for his ancestors. He's looking at the testimonies of other people. So he's fully acknowledging his situation, but he's saying, but this is who you are and this is what I know that you've done for other people, right? He's reminding himself of what God has done for others. Right? See the two things going on. Let's go again. Jump into Mark 15. This is a little bit earlier as Jesus is being led out to the cross. It says this, those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, so you who were going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him amongst themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down from the cross that we might see and believe. And those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Right? Jump back into verse 7 of Psalm 22. We see exactly the same thing prophesied. Everyone who sees me mocks me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. That's exactly what it says in verse 29 about Jesus. Those who pass by hurled insults, shaking their heads and saying him, like, This is exactly what was happening. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord deliver him. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him him deliver him since he so delights in him. Like, here's here's a situation. I'm being mocked, insulted, rejected, scorned. Like, you know, utter public humiliation and disgrace. Prophesied in Psalm 22, absolutely what Jesus walked out. But then straight on, the next verse, verse 9 of Psalm 22. So he's saying, This is my situation. People are scorning me, insulting me the whole time. They are mocking me. And again, he comes back in with this word, yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust you, even at my mother's breast. From birth, I was cast upon you. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. So same thing, seemingly two different things he's holding on to. Here's the reality of my situation, and yet... This is who you are. And this time, so the first time in Psalm 22, he's, he's kind of re-anchoring himself on the basis of other people's testimony, what he's, he's heard that God has done in the lives of other people. This time, he's reminding himself of his own testimony, of his own journey. It's like, hang on a minute. Like, this is what other people are doing. This is where I find myself. But you have absolutely been my God, and I've trusted you from day one. He's reminding himself of his testimony. The last example, we're going to start in verse 15 of Psalm 22. My mouth is dried up like a pot's herd. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. 
They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. And I'm not going to read the examples, but if you read the gospel account of Jesus' crucifixion, that is absolutely line by line by line what happened. And Jesus says that he's thirsty and they give him this bitter wine to drink. He's, he's crucified, surrounded by criminals. His hands and his feet were nailed. They pierced his hands and feet. And his clothes were absolutely, they cast lots for them and divided them up amongst them. Like that is exactly what happened. And then he goes on in the psalm, basically crying out for God and saying, God, would you help? Would you rescue me? And then he lands the psalm here in verse 22. He says, I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but he has listened to his cry for help. So there's some keys here for how we can navigate through times when what we're experiencing, what we're feeling, what we're thinking is maybe is in conflict and is different to actually what we, we know is true of God and what we read and we know of him, but it feels like there's this conflict. It, it's giving us this, this psalm is giving us a framework for how we can honestly and authentically accept and acknowledge the situation we find ourselves in and how we're feeling about it. And, but we can express it. Like we don't have to put on the Christian front that God is good and I'm fine when actually I'm not. Like there, there's so much permission in the Bible to be real to be honest, not dress it up. But it, there's a framework for listen. I can, I can accept and acknowledge and express, this is where I'm at, this is what's going on, and this is how I feel. But actually, in a way that I don't become resigned to that situation and defined by it, because actually I can remain anchored to, this is who God is, this is what he's done for me, this is what he's done for other people, and so this is what he will do again. But right now, this isn't where I'm at. It's like we have to hold on to those two things. We acknowledge the specifics and the depths of his situation. And the Psalms give us a ton of permission for that. Like they really do wax lyrically about you know, the depths of where David finds himself sometimes. But it's consistently followed by this yet, this reminder, this kind of, hang on, stepping back again to know, but this is where I'm going to choose to stand. Remind of your testimony, remind of my testimony. That's why it's so important that we share testimony. So every week there are prayer and testimony cards on your chairs because actually your testimony, testimony at some point may well add weight to my, where I might find myself in the future. I might be facing the very same thing. I say, well, hang on a minute. I remember God did this for this family for this, in this situation. That's who God is. That's what I need and I know he's going to do it again. So testimony our personal journey with the Lord and reminding ourselves who he's been, but absolutely the testimony of what we hear and see him doing in the lives of other people are really significant. And they're one of the ways that we kind of, we kind of hold ourselves back. You know, we couldn't, because the Psalm could start off, you know, where are you, God? Why have you forsaken me? And you know, he could go on and on and on and on. It's like this moment where he says, yet, is he's slightly putting the brakes on. Actually, where he could just keep going, could go unravel and, and drop off the edge of a cliff. He's like, hang, but hang on. Yet, this is who God is. And then he lands it with, I will. So there's these three phrases I want you to remember in the point of difficulty, struggle, disappointment, confusion, is three things I want you to be able to say and articulate with people who love you and are walking with you. Starting off with, I am and I feel. This is what is going on. Let's not pretend things are okay if they're not. Like that just makes no sense. 
And actually, I don't think we're able to healthily process pain and disappointment if we're not first able to articulate, this is what I'm feeling and why. I spent the first 30 years of my life vehemently denying my emotions and definitely not expressing them. And trust me, it doesn't work out so well. Honestly, it's not a great way to go. We have to be able to say, this is where I'm at. This is what's going on. And this is how I'm feeling. Even to the depths of, I feel like God is a million miles away and he's just not saying anything to me. Like, let's be real. Start off there. I am this, 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 and this. I feel A, B, C, D. But then, yet, you are and you have. God is and God has. Like reminding ourselves of who God is, reminding ourselves of our testimony, and then landing it in this place, which is choice. And listen, there is a value in us choosing to trust God even when we feel nothing, I've got nothing other than choice. That's all I've got to give is choice. Our God values us loving him with our will as much as when our, you know, it's amazing when my heart, mind, soul, spirit, everything lines up in faith and confidence and I love God and I trust him. I, you know, I love for those times. But honestly, there's moments when all I've got is grit my teeth, God, I'll choose to believe that you're good and I'll choose to trust you. And sometimes we can feel that's so inadequate, but listen, it's the widow's might, isn't it? If that's all we've got to bring, bring that. And there is a value in it. I remember, I've shared this before, you know, when our older sister had an you know, awful journey with infertility and you know, this deeply longed for, fasted for, prayed for baby, she miscarried at 11 weeks. And I was utterly, utterly heartbroken and devastated by it. And it, listen, that's a heart. I remember feeling totally confused. Like, God, we prayed for this baby and then she was pregnant and she's lost it. Like, you're, I've seen you heal. I've, you know, I know you can raise the dead. Like, I believe you're good and you're powerful and like, why? Why on earth would you let this happen? And, and I remember I was supposed to be preaching that Sunday, and I said to Phil, I've nothing. I was like, here are my notes. <laughs> Do what you like. And that's a hard place to be as a church leader. I'm like, I, I don't think I trust God. I don't think I like God. I, like, I felt so derailed by it. And I remember over the period of weeks, I felt like, you know, all I had to do, could bring in worship was God. I'll choose to trust you. I felt utterly heartbroken, totally lacking in faith, so confused. All I could do is, God, I choose to trust you. And I, it was the weirdest thing because I felt God's pleasure in what I brought in a way that I haven't when it all lined up. Like he didn't despise this miserly offering of Sarah, church leader, saying, well, I choose to trust you, but I don't think I even believe in you. Like this weird, conflicted thing that I brought. And he, you know, he, he was fine with it. Like it blessed his heart. And listen, here's the thing. I haven't stayed there. I still don't have in any way, shape or form a tidy answer as to why on earth that happened for my sister. I still don't know why we lost in that way. And I don't think I ever will. But you anchor yourself back to God's goodness in a way that, you know, and I I celebrate when those of you who are contending for children get breakthrough. It's my greatest delight. But there's still some confusion on this side. And this is what the Psalms are doing. They're giving us permission to be real in our situations, but a caution and a framework so that we don't camp out and build our lives there and build a theology around it. Well, actually, well, God doesn't heal. And actually, we're like, well, well God, you know, God sends those things to teach us a lesson. Like, that's crazy theology. That's like, and, and there are situations, you know, those of you I know have, you've lost loved ones and parents and children and siblings and friends and you've faced, you know, abuse and rejection. That is categorically not the will of God for your life at all. God does not send those things your way to teach you a lesson and build your character. Absolutely not. And yet those things happen. So we've got to find a way to navigate them. But I, I really want to stress, listen, being real about where we find ourselves is really important, but it's 
also just as important, we don't camp out there. We don't build an identity around it. We don't make life choices around it. We don't build a a theology around it and change who we believe God is and what we expect of him on the basis of significant pain and suffering. Pretending we're not where we are is daft. It's unproductive. It doesn't help anybody. But we have got to find a way to not be defined by it. Does that make sense? And listen, we need to allow the other people the opportunity to do it. You know, and I've had to really learn this because I love the word of God and I'm convinced of the power of the promises of God. And so I, you know, any moment if I'm talking with someone and they're sharing stuff, I so want to jump in and say, but God says this in the Bible and like whack them over the head with the scripture. And listen, like the word of God is a light to our path. Like I'm not in any way diminishing it. But if I haven't first given them permission to say, this is how I'm feeling. You know, so for Jesus saying, you know, why have you abandoned me? And someone jump in and say, well, hang on, the Lord will never leave you or never forsake you. In the moment of extreme pain, it's like, no, let's, let's do each other the courtesy of allowing us to express where we're at. And yes, and sometimes it's like, do you know what? I'm going to pray this and declare this for you because you may be not quite ready for me to say it to you yet. Um, so we have to learn. Here's the thing. We have to learn to hold the tension of those two things. Here is the reality of my current situation And yet here is the truth of who God says he is. Right now, those two things seem like they're in conflict. We have to learn to hold on to both of those things, actually being true and valid at the same time. And if you're anything like me, I don't do great with tensions and I don't love either ors. I'd much rather say it's this, not it's this and then it's also this. But this is what's the deal in suffering is we have to learn to hold on to two truths at the same time. The truth of your current situation and how you're feeling about it but the truth of who God is and his promise towards you. Like, even where they feel like in conflict, hold tight to both of those things. We have to learn to accept periods of time where you, it's not one or the other. Because the tendency is, well, I'll deny one or the other. I'll either deny that I'm struggling because God's good, or I'll deny God's good and he's got good things for me because of my suffering. You've got to hold on to both those two things at the same time. The truth of me what's going on and how I feel about it, but also the truth of who God is over that situation, surrounding that situation, and absolutely on the other side of that situation. We have to keep pursuing that. So it'd be like if you were on a car journey, right? If I'm getting in my car and I'm planning to drive to Edinburgh, and for whatever reason, my journey is disrupted. Maybe I have a flat tire. Maybe the car breaks down. Maybe a drunk driver drives into me and derails my car. Maybe I forgot to put petrol in it. Maybe there is roadworks and you know, we're sent off the motorway and we're diverted. For whatever reason, right? I thought I was going from A to B, and suddenly there's something in the way. We hit one of those things. And sometimes that might be my fault. Stupid Sarah, forgot to fill the car up with petrol. My bad. Sometimes it totally might not be anyone's fault. It's just that there's roadworks and they've closed that. It's just one of those things. Sometimes it absolutely might be someone else's fault. They're, you know, poor choices. You know, they drove into me. But that is where I find myself, right? On a journey that has been delayed with a car that has been damaged or isn't working for whatever reason, whether that's my fault, your fault, or just one of those things. In that moment, like that's an analogy of actually when stuff hits that we weren't expecting or weren't wanting, we have three choices, right? The first choice is say, well, sack it. I'm just going to live here. I've got my thermos. I've got my sandwiches. I'm just going to live in my car. I'm not going to go to Edinburgh. This has happened. This must be the will of the Lord. I'm just going to stay on the side of the M6 in my car for the rest of my days, right? Or we can keep going, ignoring the fact, have you ever seen anyone driving on a flat tire to the point where there's like sparks flying and like we can just keep going, denying the fact that our car is pouring smoke out of the SMI. We know that's not going to go well, right? Honestly, though, we are sometimes geniuses that in the church. 
just constantly going and going and going. And everyone around is like, this is going horribly wrong. Stop and get some help. But we just keep going because I'm going to Edinburgh. And that, but like, that's what we can do with the promises of the Lord, right? Or the more healthy way, I would suggest, is to accept your situation. I have a car that someone's driven into. I have two flat tires. I have no petrol, right? Accept the delay. Maybe accept there's a detour, but actually still believe, oh, I'm still going to Edinburgh, just maybe not as quick as I thought, maybe not in the way that I thought, but I'm still going there, right? That's how we should navigate pain and suffering and disappointment and delay and confusion, which is part of walking in a fallen world, right? We have to do those two things. And actually, if you look in this psalm, this is like front and end of the, the psalm. This is entirely what the psalmist does. So in verse 1, he is absolutely laying it out there. I feel. So he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from me, so far from my cries of anguish? I cry out to you, but you do not answer by night, but I find no rest. Right? That is the part one of our three phrases, I feel. And then he goes through this reminding, but God is this, and this is who he was for other people, and this is who's been in my life. And then he lands it in verse 24. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but he has listened to his cry for help. So it's like these two things. He's like, I feel this on the one hand, that he's forsaken me, that he's not listening to me, and he's a million miles from saving me. I feel this, but I know he does not despise my suffering. He doesn't hide his face when I'm crying out for help, even though in the moment it might feel like that. So it's those two things. I feel this. But I know this, and I'm just going to have to acknowledge and hold on to both those two things. So Psalm 22, I think, is brilliant at helping us navigate those things. But like I say, it's a compass, it's not a roadmap. You know, to try and give a nice, tidy, theological, biblical answer that we use to kind of box off our pain, I just it doesn't cut it. Um, but, so I'm not even going to try and do that. But I think a couple of points that I do want to be super clear on, because... Like, honestly, and with good reason, this is one of the most common questions, I guess, that people who don't know Jesus would ask. You know, how and why does a good God allow suffering? And it's a, listen, it's a really good question, which I don't have a nice, tidy answer for you this morning or any other morning. But a couple of things I would say, listen, is, like, we do live in a fallen world, right? Like, the world, you know, creation was perfect, but we fell. And death and sickness and pain and sin and rejection trail entered in, and we are all affected by those things in greater or lesser measure, right? Those things are not God's will, and yet sometimes those things happen. You know, sometimes it is absolutely, you know, other people sin against us. They betray, they reject, they abuse, they're unkind, they let us down. Absolutely, right? Sometimes those things happen, and pretending those times aren't devastatingly painful and confusing, it's just not helpful. So let's just give each other the grace to say, this is where I'm at. But in those things, like absolutely recognizing the, the extent of our pain, we need to hold on to this verse in Romans 8. It says this, that I consider our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Listen, in order to navigate suffering well, we need a really big revelation of the absolute goodness of God and his eternal promises for us. Like we need to have those two things. We need to have that perspective shift. And I remember like reading this verse sometimes and kind of almost being frustrated with it. So I'm like, it just feels a bit offensive because if, and I think it's because I was reading it, I was reading it in a way that was like, this is, you're expecting me to minimize pain. It's like actually, it's like actually there, I'm reading that verse as actually our current sufferings are no big deal, right? 
I don't think for a minute that's what it's saying. Actually, it's not minimizing pain, it's maximizing future glory. So it's not reducing or asking us to dress up where we're at right now, but it's just saying, hey, but just remember, just, just lift your eyes up and remember in, that eternally things end really well. But right now, I know this is really painful, right? It's, like, it's, a, it's a game changer. That's why it's so important to give ourselves and others permission for that first step where we say, I feel I am. So in all of this, let's not be tempted to try and deny or downplay where we're at, right? But in that, ask God this, you know, because in the moment our suffering, our pain can absolutely, it can feel so overwhelming and like I can't see anything but this. And so then it's like, Jesus, you need to help me. You need to help me. I need a bigger revelation of your goodness. I need a bigger assurance of your eternal promise because right now my immediate suffering feels huge. So the comparison comes with a bigger view of our eternal glory, not a minimized view of our current suffering. Does that make sense? You have to hold on to those two things. The other thing is this. You know what? At times, sometimes, like sometimes my suffering is because I'm in a fallen world or people have sinned against me or I've made a hideous choice and I'm kind of clearing up my mess, right? Other times, I think God allows us to experience circumstances that actually enable us to recognize areas of dysfunction or immaturity or brokenness where actually we are blindly following the enemy's lies, um, possibly without realizing it. And so actually our point of suffering is almost because God has in his kindness taken his hands off enough for for me to realize that. Honestly, that was my experience with having my unraveling insomnia and, you know, to the point where I was like in a signed off work, on medication, not functioning in any way. Um, Like that, for someone who had built her life around the pride of, you know, coping in all circumstances, being competent, being steady, being faithful. Like that was, that really threw me. And in the mo, in the middle of it, like genuinely, I absolutely felt like God had abandoned me and it felt so unfair and it felt so unjust and it felt so unkind. This side of it, hand on my heart, I am thankful for those experiences because God allowed me to see that actually, Sarah, the way that you're building your life, the way that you're finding security, that you're finding validation is so unhealthy and dysfunctional that it's like you're going to absolutely hit the buffers unless this changes. And I was so blind to it. I remember really early on when we were married, um, Phil's mom and dad, who were also our pastors at the time, we did a Myers-Briggs like personality profile type thing. And I came out like super high on the perfectionist thing. And um, I remember Phil's mum saying, yeah, yeah, no, you're definitely a perfectionist, Sarah. And I was so offended. It's like, I am not. How dare, and I mean, like your mother-in-law of all people can't tell you that. Can, but I was like, I'm so offended. I'm like, but now I'm like, oh my gosh, I so was. And if I'm not careful, honestly, if I don't really lean into Holy Spirit, I can so end up there. You know, I can be so performance driven. I can be so concerned with the appearance of other, you know, what other people think about how I'm doing. I'll be such a perfectionist, such a fear of failure. And honestly, in this hideous period of time of in anxiety is is genuinely God's kindness leads to repentance and repentance is a change of your mind so for me it was this radical shift on do you know what people this was the big thing for me people do not love me because I can cope and I built my whole round life around that so it's like so don't say how you're feeling don't say that you're struggling because people love you because if you, you can cope so if you don't cope well my goodness then what happens and, I like, and, and you sat out loud and you're like, that's just crazy talk. But honestly, that is where I'd found myself. And so God, in his kindness, allowed this period of intense suffering. I'm not going to pretend it wasn't anything other than that. But 
because in his kindness, he's like, so there's some stuff that needs to change for actually you to walk in the fullness that I've got for you. So sometimes it's that, right? Sometimes it's a way of God saying, you are absolutely believing a lie, Sarah, and you're so blind to it. It's like he had to let me get to the end of myself to actually then reset stuff and, and lean on him and understand grace in a, in a whole other kind of way. And I've talked about my journey a lot, but it, this, it's just worth bearing in mind in that. And this is why I think in James 1, it's one of, again, these really challenging verses where James says, you know, when you're facing trials of every kind, consider it joy. And you're like, oh, really? <laughs> consider it joy when you face trials of many times because, he says, listen, in that testing of your faith, it develops perseverance. And per- the work of perseverance is that we would become mature and complete, not lacking in any other thing. That is absolutely my testimony in, during those, in those months of insomnia, is actually there was, there was a work, there was a testing of my faith that has absolutely been worth it, this side of it. So sometimes, so we have to hold those two th- differently, right? Sometimes suffering is not your fault. It's not that you've done something wrong. It's not that you have some you know, hor- wrong belief system. or like Sometimes it isn't. It's living, listen, we live in a fallen world with fallen people, and God is radically committed to us having free choice. And sometimes other people's choices have devastating consequences on us, right? And it's painful. You know, sometimes people, you know, die when they shouldn't have done it. Like, and there isn't a tidy answer for that. But sometimes it's actually, do you know what? My suffering is coming out of my dysfunction and God's really committed to me becoming mature. So so it's worth kind of hanging in there in those times. And listen, in any of those situations when we're suffering, please don't do it on your own. Like have people around you who you can, you can keep going through. And sometimes it's like every time. I remember when Abby, and I've asked Abby, she's happy for us to share her story. She had an f- awful battle with anxiety when she was about 10. So going, it was, and it was all around school. So she would be up from 4.35 in the morning. We'd have hours of pan- panic attacks to get through to get her to school. And she'd be physically throwing up. And it was, it was desperate. Like my journey with anxiety was worse. Watching Abby go through it was 100 times worse. It was so difficult. And we landed on this little routine um, where, because it, it was irrational. She'd have a good day at school and she'd be fine when she was there, but then the next day it would all start again and she'd be absolutely terrified. And it was such, and on the, on the bad days, we just couldn't even get her into school. It was that severe. But we landed on this thing. She's like, Mommy, I, I, need, I need to be able to say, she's like, you're telling me not to feel scared. And I'm like, no, 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 I'm not. But we had this little routine we'd go through. So she'd say how she was feeling. And it was always, I'm frightened that I'm going to freak out at school. I'm scared that you're not going to pick me up. And I'm scared that I'm like, and I'm, and I'm like, okay. But I said, finish that sentence. So I was like, say, tell me how you're feeling. And she got really good at saying, I feel this but I know it's going to be okay because my teachers are with me and safe and I know you're going to let, you'll only be there at the end of the day. So she did, she got into this really good habit of, I feel, but I know. And listen, it didn't shift instantly, but actually she totally walked through that in just a beautiful way. But it's that permission and to be those people for other people. Tell me how you're feeling, but let's remember who, what we know and who we know because then that's how we navigate it. Because in any, any of our suffering, whether that's your fault, my fault, or just one of those things. Listen, our suffering cannot and does not limit or stop the goodness of God. Like It doesn't. We, and we have to believe there is purpose in our suffering. God didn't plan and will it always for us, but he will, he's so good. He's such a genius at redeeming and restoring that even the thing that the enemy has sent against you, even in your greatest loss and your biggest betrayal, God is so committed to you that he will redeem that and restore that so that in all things he's working for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Romans eight twenty eight. You build your life on that 
I am suffering, but God, you're going to work something good in this and through this. That does not mean, you know, God sent cancer to teach a lesson. That is nonsense. But even in those darkest and most painful places, he is so committed to us that he's going to turn that around for our good. He will make a way where it seems utterly impossible. And so that actually our testimony often is that actually the gold that we find in those most painful times, it makes us look at them in a completely different way. So let's, let's, I want us to be a family who don't feel like we've got to come with an RAC root planner. Okay, you're suffering. What you need to do is A, B, and C. Like, but actually, we get hold of that compass, which is God is good and he's absolutely not going to change his mind about me. His plans and purposes for me are good. He's the genius of restoration. And so, okay, I feel this. But this is who God is. And so I'm going to pray him. And that's where, that's praising. That's where this psalm lands. And this is what he kind of, he charges, I suppose, all the rest of us with is that actually, he says, I will declare your name to my brothers in the congregation. I'll play. There's actually a requirement of us in the gathered space that actually I'm going to praise him. Praise him, honor him, revere him. That's what he's saying. I will do those things because he doesn't despise or disdain our suffering, and he doesn't hide his face or not listen to our cry, even though sometimes it feels like it. I feel, and yet I know, this is who God is, and he doesn't change. So would you stand? I'd love for us to take some time to pray.